You're now listening to a podcast of Revolution Church, located at 1702 6th Street in Portsmouth, Ohio. Revolution meets on Sunday evenings at 6.30 p.m. For more information, visit www.revolutionchurchohio.com or check out our Facebook page. Good evening. All right, go ahead and open your Bibles to Psalm 51 as we continue our study of the Psalms this summer. And uh, just to let you all know, just to warn you right off the rip, uh, this, is, this psalm is super heavy, uh, and usually I kind of like to joke around a little bit, maybe, uh, but the tone of the sermon needs to reflect the tone of the text. Uh, so just a little heads up here, this is a heavy, heavy text. Uh, so a question for you while you're flipping to Psalm 51. When is the last time that you repented? When is the last time that you repented? And when I say repented, I mean, when is the last time... That you got on your face before God and saw your sin and hated it and pleaded with him for forgiveness. When was the last time you repented? Like, to really see your sin and be broken over it. To really, and again, we always do it in a finite way because I think if God let us actually feel the true weight of our sin, it would kill us. But when was the last time you really felt the weight of your sins and ran to God for forgiveness? Not viewing it as something small, but really seeing sin as wicked. I fear that for many of us, repentance is an afterthought. That we let multitudes of sins go unchecked and unconfessed in our lives. That since, especially those of us who are in the Reformed camp, since we believe in the perseverance of the saints or eternal security, whatever you want to call it, once you're saved, or rather, if you're saved, you're saved forever. Since we believe in the perseverance of the saints, we don't think that regular confession of known sins and regular repentance is that necessary. Is that you? It's been me before. And because we might not view repentance as that important in our lives, we kind of don't know what true repentance looks like because we don't give much thought to the idea very often. We view it as basically just telling God, yeah, I'm sorry about that. That's my bad. Uh, eh." And then going on with our lives. And we think that that's repentance. And guys, let me tell you, that is not biblical repentance. That is not biblical repentance. Repentance is from the heart. Repentance is a forsaking of sin and seeing sin as truly wicked. Repentance is going to God and acknowledging that what you did deserves death. And then repentance is pleading the blood of Christ for your forgiveness. Repentance isn't just, it isn't less than this, but it isn't just a mere prayer of words. right? It, it's a heart posture towards God and your sin. It's a recognition that God is holy and you are not and that you need to be made clean by God's grace. The doctrine of repentance is a doctrine that has fallen by the wayside in many churches worldwide. And may that not be said about us in our small congregation. But this psalm is one of the penitential psalms. Psalm 51 is a psalm of repentance and it's the most famous one. The only one that might vie uh, for first place would be Psalm 32 that we read at the call to worship this evening. But in the verses of Psalm 51, we're going to see King David repent for an awful sin that he had committed in his life. And in seeing his repentance, we're going to get a godly look at repentance in general and be instructed in how we must approach God after we've sinned. This psalm has been recorded for us 
not just as a beautiful poetic look at repentance, and it is that, but it's been recorded for us also in order to instruct us on what our heart posture and desires should be as we confess our sins to God. All right, so with that being said, I want you to take inventory of your life. Take inventory of your life and see what you need to repent of. Be thinking on that as we're going through this. All of us have something. Right? All of us have areas in our lives where we're failing to honor God as holy. My prayer is that through this psalm, the Holy Spirit would work in us and break us and bring us to repentance. And then by the grace of God, we might be stitched back together by God's mercy and grace given to us through the Lord Jesus. So that's my goal this evening. But without any more for introduction, Psalm 51. Starting with the introduction. To the choir master, a psalm of David. When Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings, and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word given to us, handed down to us, that we might know who you are, that we might see ourselves clearly, that we might see the gospel. Lord, we thank you that in this book that you've given to us, we're taught what repentance is what is necessary in order to be made right with you, how we're to approach you, how we're to view you, how we're to view ourselves. So Lord, I pray that you would teach us repentance this evening. Please do a work of sovereign grace. Lord, if there's anyone here who has not repented unto salvation, Lord, I pray that they would come to know you savingly. And for those of us who are Christians already, I pray that you would continue to grant daily repentance to us that we might honor Christ the Lord as holy. Please bless us now as we look into your word. Bless our study of the scriptures. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so you'll notice 
that at the beginning of this psalm, there is a long introduction. Usually it might say something like, a psalm of David, right? Um, just something real short, like a, a song of one of the sons of Korah. But this one has a, a very long comparatively introduction. Um, and this intro actually gives us, it's one of the few psalms that actually gives us a historical context behind King David writing this psalm. It says, to the choir master, a psalm of David when, the, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. And this is a nice way, right, I recognize the children are in here. This is a nice way of saying that this psalm was written after Nathan the prophet called David out for committing adultery with Bathsheba and then having her husband Uriah killed on the front line of a war. You guys will remember that from 2 Samuel, uh, I believe it's chapters 11 and 12 of David's great sins against Uriah and Bathsheba. Uh, but basically, Nathan, the prophet, speaking on behalf of God, goes to David and says to him, you deserve to die for your sin of adultery and murder. Repent. In a nutshell, that's what Nathan says to him. And David, by God's grace, repented immediately. Like on the spot, record time repentance. So we read this, 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 13. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. That's David's response. I have sinned against the Lord. And it's an, it's an expression of repentance. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. So Nathan tells him, you deserve to die David says, I repent, I have sinned against God Almighty, but God has put away your sin, David, you will live. We might take something like that for granted. God forgave David of his sins. People who want to say that the Old Testament is just a God of wrath with no compassion or mercy are not reading the Bible. God forgave David of his sins. Awful sins, like adultery and murder. And then after this, as a further response of repentance, David goes on to pen Psalm 51. And I want to make an early point of application here. The fact that God forgave David for such heinous sins. Heinous sins. Now again, we're not Catholics. We don't believe in uh, mortal sin and venial sin. Right? We believe that all sin deserves the just wrath of God. And that all sin, whether small or great, will send you to hell. But we do believe that there are some sins that are actually greater than others. Because Jesus alludes to that. But if God forgave David for such heinous sins, toward the top of the list, adultery and murder for certain, if God forgave David for that, that should encourage us to go to God in repentance and receive forgiveness. If God would be merciful to a murdering adulterer, surely he would be merciful to us. Right Now hear me, this shouldn't encourage us to do anything stupid like to presume upon God's grace and premeditatively sin. I'm not saying that. That's dumb. But the fact that God forgave David should encourage us to go to God and confess our sins so that we can be forgiven and experience restoration. David's failure and God's great mercy towards him should encourage us. So listen, God can, I want to get this out before we go any further into this psalm. God can and will and has promised to forgive all who come to him repenting of their sins and trusting in the life, death, and resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ. Anyone who will come. Anyone who will come in repentance and faith. God will forgive them. 
God will forgive any sin that you have committed. If you will come to Him turning away from the sin and believing that Christ has lived perfectly in your place, has died on a cross, absorbing the wrath of God on your behalf, and was raised from the dead so that you might be raised to newness of life as well. If you come to Him believing that Christ has done this in your room instead, on your behalf, then God will forgive you. He can, He will, and He promises to forgive all who would come to Him. That's why Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. All you who are weary and heavy laden with your sins, would you be free? Come to Christ. But with that being said, let's dig into this psalm of repentance and learn what true repentance looks like. Verses 1 and 2. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgression. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Notice this. Rather than running from God in his sin. Granted, David had been running from God and not repenting for about a year at this point that Nathan comes to him. Nathan, or David finally runs straight to God in repentance and ceases running from him. Which would be a great uh, assurance to any Christian, anyone who's been born again, that God will make you repent at some point. He will bring you back to him. It's just a matter of how long and how hard will he have to make you suffer under conviction before you come. Right, but David, instead of running away from God, runs straight to God in repentance. And he comes, how? He comes pleading mercy. He comes pleading mercy. Have mercy on me, O God. He's saying, please, God, do not give me what I deserve for my sins. That's what mercy is. is whenever you don't get what you deserve. Right? Grace is whenever you get what you don't deserve. But mercy is whenever you don't get what you should get. He says, God, please do not give me what I deserve for my sins. Have mercy on me, a sinner. David does not come to God pleading forgiveness because he is a good guy. Right? David does not come to God pleading for forgiveness because of the good things that he has done in his past. And if you read David's life, David has done some really good things. He's the king of Israel. Remember, he slaughtered Goliath, right? All that. David could say, look at the good things that I've done for you, God. Please forgive me based on that merit. No. He comes with no merit whatsoever. No meritorious works. Nothing. He says, please, have mercy on me. David comes to God for forgiveness based solely on what God has revealed about himself already. Exodus chapter 34, verses 6 and 7. We'll read a portion of it. The Lord passed before him, Moses, and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious. It goes on to say, forgiving sin and iniquity and transgression. God has already revealed that in the book of Exodus. David knows this. So, God, so David comes to God for forgiveness, pleading what? God's own merciful nature. David comes pleading, God, you have revealed yourself as Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious. And I'm cashing in on that because I need mercy. He's coming to God based on what God has revealed to mankind, that he is a merciful and gracious and forgiving God. And hear me, this is the only ground that a sinner has to come before God. It's on the ground of his mercy. This teaches us that when we come to God in repentance, we must realize you 
must realize, let's make this personal, you must realize that you have no right to come to Him. You have no right to come before a holy God in your sin. We have sinned against Him. There is nothing in us that makes us worthy to approach Him. Our only hope of forgiveness is in the truth that God says He is merciful and forgives those who come to Him. Listen, if you have a brain in your head, you would dare not approach God as a sinner unless He had first bid you to come to Him. We would never dare to approach a holy God covered in sin unless He first says, come. So we come to Him appealing to His mercy and His steadfast love that He has promised to His people. And in doing so, we drop any false sense of self-righteousness that we deserve anything from Him. We let go of any false notion that we deserve a second chance because contrary to what American culture tells you, you don't deserve a second chance. All you deserve is God's holy wrath for your sin. But we come to God crying out, Have mercy on me, O God, and cleanse me, wash me, forgive me, because you have promised mercy to those who come. So, Lord, I come. You've promised mercy, so I come. And just a quick side note here is a freebie for you. Since David comes to God based on God's own self-revelation, we know that God will certainly say yes to all of David's requests in this psalm because God is faithful to his own nature. Right? So these aren't, maybe God will give me these things that I ask for. He's saying God has already revealed that he would give me these things, so I'm asking for them, just so you know. But then David goes on after acknowledging that he's coming only on the grounds of mercy, and he goes on to confess his own sins. He says, For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. David goes and owns his sin to God. He says, I know my transgressions. My sins are forever. They're ever before my face. When I wake up, they're there. When I go to bed, they're there. When I'm working throughout the day, I know what I am. I know what I've done. David's confessing his sin to God. I know my transgressions. Here's, here, here they are. I know what they are. So David's confessing his sin this might seem like a stretch to you, but we can talk about it later if you want to. But when we tie him saying, I know my transgression, this confession of sin, and then we tie that confession to the introduction that David wrote, naming his sin of adultery, we see that David is confessing his known sins particularly. Right? He's naming specific sins specifically. He's naming them to God. He doesn't try to hide from his sins. He names them. This is important for us to know. David names his sins to God. He doesn't try to make his sin vague and distance himself. Right? And you know what I'm talking about. Lord, I kind of messed up today. Uh, I did some stuff I shouldn't have done. Please forgive me. No, that's not what David does. He doesn't try to make it vague and distance himself. He owns his sins. So that tells us that when we go before God and confess, we need to be specific when we can. And I know that you're not always going to remember everything that you did, because that's impossible. But whenever you know of your sin, you need to confess it, right? We should feel the shame and guilt of our sins. That's why we don't like to name them whenever we pray and we're asking God for forgiveness. We don't want to name our sins because we're ashamed of them, right? Don't try to church it up. Name your sin, Hear me on this. You were bold enough to commit the sin, were you not? You were bold enough to sin before a holy God. Now own it. 
We must now own it and feel that heat of embarrassment that rises up in your face. We should be embarrassed. We should be ashamed. Name your sins to God. He knows them already. He wants you to name them so you might feel them. That you might feel them and be embarrassed and be ashamed. And David owns not only just his sin, but that his sin is primarily against God. He owns that in verse 4. He says, against you, you only have I sinned. Right? Now this is telling us that sin is always vertical before it's horizontal. Right? Sin is always against God before it's against anyone else. Right? David's not denying that he sinned against Uriah or that he sinned against Bathsheba or even as the king of Israel that he actually sinned against the whole country because he's their representative in some fashion. Right? He's not denying that, but he's saying, I recognize that primarily I have sinned against God. First and foremost, I have sinned against God. Hear me on this. You must see that your sin is an offense to God primarily against Him. God is the one who has been wronged in our sin. Don't, don't misunderstand me. You didn't hurt Him. He's omnipotent. You've incurred His wrath and His displeasure. You haven't hurt Him, but you have offended Him. Sin is an offense to Him. First and foremost, it is His law that was broken. It is His promises that were not trusted. It is His holy name that we have dishonored. First and foremost. And God does not deserve this. I don't know if you've ever considered this. God is innocent. He's, he's innocent. He is the most innocent being in the universe. He is more innocent than the newborn child that you hold in your arms. He is the most holy and innocent one in the universe who does only good. How dare we offend Him? Everything you have comes from Him. Every good and perfect gift comes from our Father. How dare we sin against this innocent one. This only good one. And because of our sins and that we've sinned against an innocent, blameless God, we must recognize that God is blameless and just in His judgments. David says you are blameless and just in your judgments. In other words, we must recognize that God has us dead to rights. He has us dead to rights. We deserve to die for our sins. Not just physically, but we deserve to spiritually die. We deserve to suffer the wrath of God in an eternal hell. We need to own this. I deserve the just wrath of God. That we have no defense. Please hear me. You have no defense. You have no excuse to give God for your sin. Because there is no excuse. There is no defense for why you've sinned. No real one anyway. You just rebelled. Period. You rebelled. And you are guilty. We have to own these truths when we repent that we are guilty and that God would be just to kill us and then condemn us. And a question for you. Do you really view yourself as this guilty and deserving of punishment when you sin? I would wager probably not. If we did, our Bibles would be tear-stained and soaked through we really saw ourselves as this guilty that we deserve the just condemnation of God verse 5 behold I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me David is declaring here his own depravity 
right? His original sin. He's owning that, let me make this clear real quick. He's not saying that his mother was promiscuous. That's not what he's saying. In another psalm, his mother's called a handmaiden of Yahweh, a handmaiden of God, good reputation. He's saying that he was born a sinner, right? So as David is owning his particular sins, he also owns that his whole nature is completely corrupted by sin. He's saying, I have not just sinned, but I am a sinner. I have not just sinned, but I am a sinner. He's owning that he is thoroughly sinful and has been so since conception. Right? And we know this. We talk about this a good bit here at Rev. It's just why we sin. We sin because we are sinners by nature. Because we've inherited Adam's guilt. He's owning that. But this declaration of inborn sin is meant to teach us that the sins we are repenting of are not an isolated incident, are they? This isn't my first offense. This is not the first time I've sinned against the Holy God. My whole life has been one of sin and offense to God. I was conceived a sinner. My whole life has been one big offense to God in my sin. And this verse reminds us that we have sinned times without number. We're honest with ourselves. And it reminds us that sin is in us and that we must be thoroughly cleansed from the inside out. Not just this one action, but our whole being needs to be made new. Verse 6, Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Here David is saying, it's very easy to see, you delight in truth. That God delights in the truth. God desires us to be honest when we come to Him in repentance, and in general. Right? Don't lie to God, He already knows. You can't be that dumb to try to lie to Him. But when we come to Him in repentance, we must be honest And hear me out, this is one of the big reasons why God tells us to come and confess our sins to Him. He desires truth in the inward being, in the inward person. He wants us to be honest. He already knows the sin. We don't come to Him. He's not a pagan God that we can hide things from, right? He already knows everything that we've done, but He desires us to come before Him with humble hearts, being honest with ourselves and honest with Him about our sin. So when we come, we must come honestly, no longer trying to hide our sin, no longer trying to justify our sins, right? And you know what I'm talking about, right? And you usually don't say this in your prayer, but it's in your heart like, no, you just don't understand, right? It was different for me. You didn't see what she looked like. You didn't see, I was bored, right? It was different this time. The situation was special, so I sinned, right? That kind of justification. Stop that nonsense. God delights in truth. Instead of that, we are to look truth in the eye and see ourselves rightly as sinners in need of mercy. And when we come to God in repentance, we must come in faith. Verse 7. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. In this verse is a plea for cleansing. And we've seen that already Uh, We've seen that plea for cleansing, wash me. We've already seen that in this psalm. But in this verse, and this hit me, I read it a bunch of times, and it didn't hit me until lately. David expresses faith that God will purify, that God will forgive him. He says, purge me, wash me, and I shall be clean. I will. David's saying, God, I know that you are mighty to save I know you're merciful. I know you're gracious. I know that you're able to do this. And if you wash me, Lord, if you cleanse me, I will infallibly be forgiven. 
It's a certainty for David. He's saying, I know that you can make me clean. And I know that you're willing to make me clean. So, Lord, I ask for it. And I know you're able and I know you're willing. David is praying in faith. Believing that God is able and willing to forgive. But the most interesting thing to me for verse 7 is that David mentions hyssop. Now, that might not mean anything to you. Right? I can't imagine it would mean very much to any of us, uh, unless you're talking about a biblical context. But hyssop meant a lot to David. And hopefully after this, it'll mean a lot to you as well. Hyssop is a branch that was used in Old Testament ceremonies to sprinkle people and things with. Right? Often it was used to sprinkle blood on objects to sanctify them and people. And hyssop you read back in Exodus, hyssop was the branch used at the first Passover to, to smear the blood of a lamb on the doorposts of the Israelites' homes so that God's wrath would pass over them. Hyssop was the branch used there. That's what David has in his mind whenever he pens this. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. What's he saying? He's saying, God, purge me with a blood sacrifice that you offer. We see in verse 16 where he says, I, I, there's no sacrifice for me to give. Right? There's no sacrifice that I would bring or I would. David says, there's nothing that I can bring. So God, if you're going to purge me with hyssop, if you're going to sprinkle me with blood, it's going to have to be from a sacrifice that you have brought yourself. And this drives us straight to the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a foreshadowing of Christ, who is the God-given sacrifice for sinners. Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, who came to take away the sins of the world. The one whom God set forward as a sacrifice to satisfy his righteous wrath against sinners so that by faith in him we might be sprinkled with his blood and made clean. So that by faith in him we might be washed in his blood and reconciled to the God that we've sinned against. The blood of Christ is the only thing that can take a black object and make it white. Whiter than snow, David says. So when we repent, we repent believing that God can, will, and has sprinkled us with the blood of Jesus. Hear me on that. We must pray in faith, knowing that God can, will, and has sprinkled us with the blood of Christ. That's our plea. That's our plea. Have mercy on me. Why should I, says God, because your son bled and died for me. That's our plea. Because your son satisfied your wrath on my behalf. Because you've said without the shedding of blood there is no forgiveness of sins. And his blood was shed for me. And I plead that you would sprinkle me with that blood because you've promised to sprinkle with his blood all who come to you by faith. That's our plea. We go to God believing that Jesus Christ has taken our sins away from us and made us clean. Like John says in 1 John 1, 1.9, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And in verse 7 of that chapter in 1 John, He says He does this by the blood of His Son, Jesus Christ. But when we repent, we don't just ask for forgiveness. Now, this might be something you've never thought of. I hadn't thought of it. I mean, I guess I knew, but I'd never seen it in this text before. We don't just ask for forgiveness. We ask for restoration as well. It's not just about forgiveness. It's about restoration. This is a big point. 
We don't come to God in repentance just because we don't want to, or just because we want to avoid the wrath of God. Right? We don't come just to avoid wrath. We come to God in repentance because we want communion with Him. Because we want closeness with Him. Because we want fellowship with Him. So please hear me on this. This is harsh, and I'm going to challenge you with it. If all that you care about in matters of faith is avoiding the wrath of God, I don't know if you're a Christian or not. If all you care about is, I don't want to go to hell, I don't know whether or not you're saved. Follow me on this. Can you really say that you love your spouse if all that you care about is if they're angry with you? If all you care about is whether or not your spouse is angry with you, can you really say that you love them? If you, you, don't, you just don't want them angry and you don't care about whether or not you're actually close with each other and in real fellowship with each other and walking in step with one another, you don't care anything about that. You just want to make sure your spouse isn't angry with you. Can you really say that you love them? That's not love. If all you care about is the avoidance of wrath, that's not love. That's not real love. That's self-serving and self-preserving selfishness. Unbelievers want to save their skin. But Scripture says that when we're converted to Christ, God gives us a heart that loves Him. He'll create in us a new heart. He'll remove the heart of stone and give us a heart of flesh that wants to walk in obedience to Him, that loves Him, that beats for Him. So we're not just trying to avoid wrath when we repent. We're coming to God because we want restoration of what we've broken through our sin. So David asked God for restoration after he asked for forgiveness. That's what we see in verses 8 through 12. We're just going to blast through these because this should be our model as well. We go before God saying, please forgive me. Have mercy on me because of the blood of your son. I own my sin. I name my sin. I know what I am. I need thoroughly cleaned. And then we ask for restoration. Verse 8, let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Right? The sins that we have committed and conviction that God has laid upon us has made us miserable. If you've been a Christian for any amount of time, you know what I'm talking about. Right? Again, and metaphorically, God has broken our bones. He has hurt us and our sin has hurt us down to the core of who we are. Because we have made ourselves strangers to the God who provides life for us. And now we come to Him and ask, God, restore my joy. Restore the joy that I have in right fellowship with you. Give me my joy back. Verse 9, hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. This sounds like a plea for forgiveness, and I believe that's partially it, but we're, we're asking God to hide his face and blot out my iniquities, that God would not look upon our sins anymore. Right? Whenever God doesn't look upon something anymore, he forgets about it. We ask that he wouldn't look upon our sins, that he would forget them, uh, metaphorically speaking, and that he would blot them out like ink spilled on a book. You ever spilled a bunch of ink on something? You can't read it anymore. He's saying, blot the ledger out that holds the debt against me. Blot it out so it can never be read or seen again. But in asking this, I think David is implicitly saying, God, please continue to look upon me. Remember, this, path, this part of the psalm, he's asking for restoration. So he's saying, don't look at my sin. Blot out my sin. Lord, don't look upon that, but please continue to look upon me in favor. Please keep looking upon me. 
Verse 10, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. So as we pray for restoration, we should ask that God would give us new, clean hearts that love Him. And that He would give us a right, He would renew a right spirit within me. Now that word right means constant, a constant spirit, or a loyal spirit. We say, God, give me a loyal spirit, a spirit and a desire to walk in line with you and your truth. And we ask that because we don't want to fall again. True repentance involves an endeavoring to not commit the sin again. I'm not saying that God won't forgive you if you commit the sin again, but we're not presuming upon that grace. It's, Lord, give me a loyal spirit within me that I might not fall because I want to honor you. Give me a right spirit. Verse 11, cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Now hear me on this, and we can debate out in the parking lot if you'd like to. God does not and has never taken the Holy Spirit away from those whom he has saved. Never. He hasn't. But rather, this is a plea. And I think everyone who's ever really looked their sin in the eye has felt this way as a Christian. This is a plea that God would not forsake us or give up on us. You ever had it be the umpteenth time that you've committed that sin and you think God must be giving up on me at some point in the future? There's no way he has enough mercy. And shame on us for doubting the truth of God. God has more grace than we have sin. But this is a plea that God would not forsake us or give up on us. It's a plea that God would continue to work in us by His grace so that we might live daily in His presence because we love Him. And then verse 12, Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. We ask that God would give us a willing spirit to make us willing and able to continue to love and follow Him. That He would... Grant us the grace of perseverance. That's why he's saying, give me a willing spirit, a spirit that would, a spirit in me that I would continue on in repentance and faith so that I would not fall away from you entirely. Give me a willing spirit. Grant me perseverance. That's something that we should always be praying for whenever we come in repentance is, God, I, if left to my own devices, will leave. Like the great hymn writer Charles Wesley said, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart. Lord, take and seal it. Right? He's saying, seal it. Seal it to yourself. Because if you don't, I'll leave. Because I know how wicked that I am. We should always pray that God would give us a willing spirit to continue on. But again, we repent. Not just for the forgiveness of sins, but we repent because we want closeness with our God again. We want restoration of what has been broken. For the sake of time, I'm going to skip some of the things that I wanted to say to you. This is a psalm I want to return to at some point. I want to skip down to verses 16 and 17. David says, For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. David's saying, there is no sacrifice for me to give to you, God. Please hear me on this. Like we sang that, that hymn that we just sang at the beginning, Not in Me. There's nothing that I can do. There's nothing that you can bring to God to merit forgiveness. 
There's no act of contrition. There's no confession to a priest. There's nothing that you can do. There's no good that you can do to right the wrong that you've done against a holy God. There is no sacrifice for you to bring to God for the forgiveness of your sins. There's nothing. David recognizes this. Even under the old covenant, there is no sacrifice to present for adultery and murder. You just die when you commit those sins. God's teaching David that justification, that salvation comes by faith alone, in the mercy of God alone. And under the new covenant, it's been revealed to us fully and finally that salvation comes through faith alone, in Christ alone, by the grace of God alone. There's nothing that we can do to come to him to merit forgiveness. God's teaching David this. There is no sacrifice for you to bring to me. But then David receives an assurance of pardon in verse 17. The sacrifices of God. Oh, so there's no sacrifice I can bring. But there's something else. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. To despise something means to push it away and reject it and refuse to accept it. What's David say? He says, there's nothing that I can bring to you, but God, I know that if I come to you broken for my sin, not just fearing the condemnation that comes with it, but actually being contrite about it, hating the sin itself, desiring reconciliation with you because I love you and I want to be restored. If we come to God like that, he will no, never send us away. He says, you will not reject that. You will accept that. There's nothing that I can bring, but if I come to you in repentance, you will take me in. That's our hope. That's our hope. So listen, go to God. He will not despise you. He will take you in and make you clean. He's promised us this here in Psalm 51, verse 17. And Jesus himself reiterates this in the Gospel of John. Verse, or chapter 6, verse 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. What a gracious Redeemer. That He would not cast us out. No matter how many times we sin, that we can run to the Savior. And He says, come. I will not cast you out. A broken and contrite heart I will not despise. There's nothing that you can give to me, but I will lay down my life for you and suffer the wrath that you deserve so that you might be reconciled. So let me end with this. Repent. Repent. I don't know what your sin is, but I know that you have sinned. Because I do. And I don't think that I'm a freak. Repent. How long will you stay in your sin? Will you be a fool like David who sat in his sin for over a year? How long will you stay in your sin while such mercy and forgiveness is offered? How long will you try to justify and overlook your sins of word and thought and deed? How long will you try to convince yourself that it's a small sin and not a big deal? Stop lying to yourself. Stop lying to God. Stop being stubborn. Humble yourself before God and receive His pardon through the Lord Jesus. 
Repent of your wicked attitude. Of your unforgiving heart. Repent of your gossip and slander. Repent of your lust. Turn from your drunkenness and your obsessive worrying and your pride and your fear of man and what people think. Hate your disobedience and your laziness and your neglect of your spouse and your neglect of your children and repent of your self-righteousness and cry out to God for mercy. Have mercy on me, O God, and ask to be cleansed by the blood of Christ and know that God will not cast you away. Know that. A broken and contrite heart, O Lord, you will not despise. Come to Him and He is faithful and just to forgive you and to restore you. He will be merciful. He will show you steadfast love. He will take you in. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word to us, this precious word that you will not cast us out, that if we come to you in faith in Jesus Christ and repentance from our sin, that you will take us in and forgive us and love us and give us a clean heart and restore us. And God, I pray that you would grant repentance to all of us this evening, that you would bring to light sins that we've committed, maybe sins that we've been committing for years and weren't aware of, or sins that we've been harboring, secret sins, hidden sins. Lord, cleanse us, bring us to a place that we might recognize our sin is exceedingly wicked and that we might see Christ as more beautiful than anything we've ever laid our eyes on. Grant us these things, God, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.